are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. This is the Ideas on Trapped podcast and my guest today is Andrew Nevin. Andrew is a partner and the chief economist of PwC Nigeria and West Africa. You're welcome, Andrew. Uh, Toby, it's always great to be here. Thank you so much. And I should also tell you that this is your third appearance on the podcast, and it's a record for us. Well, my goodness. Well, I just thank you for it's such an It is always an honor to be here. All right. Thanks, Andrew. So one of the reasons I want to do this with you is to get your thoughts generally on a wide range of topics. And I know that one thing you're very interested in is mega trends, which you have written about, which you also plan to be a lot more interested in going forward. So I want to talk about a few of these so-called mega trends. But if you can like boil it down for us, what are mega trends and why should we care about them? Well, the mega trends are, are, I mean, the big things that are happening in the world and the way the world's going to be shaped in the coming decades. Um, and people might say, well, what does it have to do with me? But I mean, the, you know, the truth is that most people, thank God, are going to live a long time. If you're 20 years old now, you know, 2050, you're going to be still under 50. And the way the world works is, is going to affect you. And these changes, I mean, at some level, people think these changes are uh, not much year over year. And that's probably true. But cumulatively, over a decade or two decades, it's enormous. And, and of course, at, at my age, these megatrends are not really some abstract concept. I mean, I can look back at the way the world worked in the 80s and the trends that were kind of on course at the time that you could identify and how the world's changed. And to give a simple example, I mean, I went to China the first time in 1983. There was not a single private vehicle in China. But China's economy was opening up. Certainly by the early 90s, there was some discussion about the kind of economic rise of China. And now, very short order, a couple of decades later, China actually has, by PPP terms, has the largest economy in the world. So these megatrends over time, over a few decades, really make an enormous difference to the way the world works. And I think that people should take an interest in that, but also just from a career perspective or what you're going to do in the world. I mean, it makes a lot more sense to be kind of uh, going with the megatrends than going against the megatrends. So when you think about your education, you think about sorts of the professional jobs you want. The megatrend should be playing into it. And of course, I'm an example of that. I mean, I was in China for a decade. It was a megatrend. I'm now in Africa for more than a decade. Africa rising, of course, is another megatrend. So I don't just study these. I live them. So let's discuss demography and population. We see different trends in different countries and different regions. We know that Asia, particularly Northeast Asia, Korea, China, the population is rapidly aging. And even in Western Europe, the U.S., the population, particularly within people of European descent, is also aging. Fertility is quite low. And when you look at Africa, population is exploding. We are also getting younger. What are the economic and social implications of demographic changes and population growth? in all these parts of the world. What have you noticed? What have you seen? 
Well, I mean, to begin with, I think the you know the concept of sort of ever increasing GDP or GDP growth, I mean, it's really coming to an end in in many countries because this demographic handwood is so strong. I mean, if you think about headline GDP growth, it's a function of really three things. One is um, productivity growth. Two is the number of working age people, and three is the percentage of working age people that participate in the labor force. So those are the three variables that drive it. And now you have a situation where in many countries the number of working age people is going down and it's going down faster and faster. So in Japan, that started in 1994. People are always surprised at how slowly the Japanese economy grows. But I mean, productivity is only going to increase at most 1% a year these days. So if your working age population is decreasing at, say, 0.5% a year, then it's pretty clear you're not going to have much GDP growth. Now, this has big implications for the world. I mean, first for Africa, of course, we'll come to more detail, but I mean, there's a shift in the economic weight to Africa. But also all of our kind of economic policy devices that we have are all based on a continually growing economy, almost like a pyramid scheme. It has slow moving pyramid schemes. So the younger generation pays taxes to support the older generation. But if the younger generation is smaller than the previous generation, the generation that's in retirement or requires significant health care, how does that actually work? And this is just accelerating. I mean, it's very interesting with COVID. So, I mean, we already know that the working age population in China is declining. And because of the one China policy, and now even though it's been relaxed because, um, again, the same sort of demographic trends that happen in Korea and Japan, you've really had a collapse in births in China. So uh, I think in 2019, there were 14 million births, but in COVID year 2020, there were only a little over 10 million births, less than 11 million births, which is extraordinary in a country of 1.4 billion people. I mean, the National Population Commission in Nigeria says that there's about 7 million births in Nigeria. So you've got this giant population country, China, with only 10 million births, and you've got this young upcoming country in Nigeria with 7 million births. So this is rapidly changing. Or if we look at the relationship between Africa and Europe, I think in 1950, the population of Africa was uh, one third of the population of Europe. And now we're heading to a situation where the population of Africa by 2050 will probably be three times Europe. So, I mean, there were 5 million births in all of Europe this year, and there's 7 million births in Nigeria, there's 40 million births in Africa. So in a sense, Europe needs Africa more than Africa needs Europe. And I think they need to have a prosperous Africa because it's obviously a security threat around the world if we have this burgeoning population and people are not doing well, young people are not doing well. But simultaneously, they're going to find that the only growing market is in Africa. Um, and of course, Nigeria is the largest economy here. So very quickly, I think, I mean, we've had a little bit of this Africa rising narrative for a decade. It's been a little bit uneven, um, but I think it's very clear in the 2020s and 2030s that um, Africa is going to become increasingly at the center of global economic, well, social and economic forces. And, and of course, in Nigeria, you go back to what I was talking about, China, there's now a prediction that Nigeria will actually become the world's second largest country by population by 2100, which is just extraordinary, uh, surpassing China with its collapsing birth rate. I know you are not really a big fan of GDP, so I, I'm not going to talk about that. But let's look at productivity. We know that productivity growth in Africa is pretty slow and it's low on average, but we also see the rate of productivity growth slowing down in Europe, in the UK, and even in the US. What will the future look like if this is a trend, if low productivity is the new normal for most economies? 
what would the future look like? Exactly. So, I mean, let's stick for the moment to GDP as a number because it's so widely used. I mean, you're right, Toby. I'm not a huge fan of it, but this is how we tend to think about the economy. So, I mean, people go on about kind of the digital revolution, but the reality is even in the 20th century, a lot of the things that really made a difference to productivity were not digital. They were physical things. And uh, a lot of them happened, you know, in the first half of the century. So to take a simple example, something like air conditioning, massive change in the way work was organized, certainly through the southern United States. I mean, that's why it's been booming for 50 or 60 years now, a city like Atlanta. You couldn't really do the things you do there now before you had kind of centralized uh, air conditioning at a reasonable cost. I mean, even the development of kind of the transportation network, the automobile and say in Europe, the train network, those were things that predated the digital revolution. So some academics have made this point too, kind of an overestimation of the impact of the digital versus sort of physical innovations. And a lot of physical innovations, it's hard to see them really um, changing much of it. I mean, so many ways, I mean, if I look at the way I live when I'm in Canada, for example, I mean, I don't think it's that much different than when I was uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s on that. So it's not a big surprise that we have kind of flattening productivity numbers. And of course, you go back to what we were saying earlier, if you have lower productivity growth and you have negative demographic growth, then of course your headline GDP is going to be is going to be stagnant so or zero or negative even. And of course that's, I guess the term has been used the new normal for that lower growth rate. But I, I think that really countries are going to have to consider what that means for the economy. I mean, to make it more specific, if you think about the debt that's incurred in the COVID recovery, the fiscal stimulus that every developed country has had, uh, and now you face the prospect of not having headline GDP growth for you know, very much for a decade. You know, what are the implications of that level of debt for that country? You know, that's an interesting question in itself because you know, we've always had this. We used to say at 50 percent of debt to GDP, you were going to go to a crisis and 75 percent and then 100 percent. And now we're in uncharted territory. So it's not really clear what the answer to that is. But certainly if you're a policymaker in a country like the UK, you can't count on headline GDP growth to, to kind of in effect grow yourself out of um, the debt situation. Mm. Let's talk about another mega trend, which is climate change and future energy use. Of course, climate change is a serious problem. It is global. I mean, a lot of people in Africa like to talk about not experiencing extreme weather conditions, but the manifestation may be different. I've seen various analysis that puts the hardest farmers clashes in Nigeria as some kind of consequence of climate change with desertification and all that. So I would like to ask you, renewables, have they lived up to their promise yet? And if no, what can we do? What should we subsidize? Is it technology? Is it widespread adoption? Where are the constraints? Personally, I, from my perspective, I think of climate change as sort of the existential crisis for humanity. And it, there is no no choice at this stage. I mean, the evidence, I think, is I'm in the camp. It's just overwhelming. And I think individual people are recognizing this, too. And why? Because they, they see in their own homes that the climate is changing and it's becoming more volatile. Um, so I think then, of course, among young people, there really is a recognition that the way that we treated the planet can't um, can't persist uh, on that. So, so I'm I'm quite heartened in the last five years about the kind of momentum for sort of serious um, solutions there. 
And of course, you see some policy things that are really quite surprising, not just policy, but business decisions. So a number of companies, Volkswagen being one, I think by 2030 or 2030 or perhaps earlier, will phase out internal combustion engine, which is just amazing when you think about it. Um, and I think there's a lot more will at the policy level. I mean, the, we had the Paris Accord and, of course, the U.S. stepped out of that um, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by it, but we still, you know, we have so far to go. And then you rightly ask, you know, how do re- renewable energy fit in? And I mean, I do think that the numbers show that certainly, um, uh, wind and solar, the cost of production of those, those, uh, sources of energy have, have come down. We still need another, um, breakthrough in the, uh, battery technology, um, to be able to store it. Cause of course they're intermittent. Um, it's, you know, you don't produce power on demand. You have to have a way to store it. But I mean, those technologies are coming in, and particularly for advanced countries, the, the 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 cars themselves become the batteries, right, for the whole grid. So when you have the, I'm sure people have heard the term smart grid. When you have the whole set of electric vehicles connected to the smart grid, then the car can be used as a place to store electricity and um, in 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 such a way that you don't lose the wind or the solar power there. Um, and then uh, the other thing, though, when you ask about the subsidy, I think as a starting point, I mean, the truth is, and Canada does this as well, we effectively subsidize fossil fuels. I mean, sort of some of the extra tax breaks for, for oil producers, for example. The U.S. does that to a big extent. So even before we talk about subsidizing um, the renewables further, uh, I mean, all we need to start with is removing the subsidies for the fossil fuels. So you have an energy source that destroys the planet, uh, that you know, creates extreme weather conditions, and yet we choose to, to subsidize it. And it's just a, I think it's a manifestation of something that's really been on my mind the uh, last little while, which is that, um, that uh, uh, you know, I think economists have done really a great disservice to the world. And I'm embarrassed when I'm introduced as chief economist, because, I mean, if you think about, if you think about, um, the way the planet works and the economy works, the you know the people talk the contribution of nature to to economic prosperity, but I mean there wouldn't be people if we, if we destroy nature, humanity is not going to survive. And I think that um, uh, economists, by not calculating these things correctly or thinking about them correctly, really caused big damage. I mean it's it's obvious if you make a uh, a profit at a company, at an oil company, for example, but in the course of making this profit, you create environmental destruction that you're not paying for, um, that you haven't, we haven't done the thinking right. We're not figuring the, the cost of that destruction. And in fact, at a certain level, you could say it's a criminal activity. You are stealing um, the, you know, stealing nature from the rest of, of humanity and not paying for it. And people that take things without paying them, we call them criminals on that. So I, I think economics has a lot to, to, to answer for over the next few, few decades um, and, and, and in doing this. But, but overall, with the renewables, uh, I think, as I said, the biggest starting point for developed countries certainly would be not even worrying about subsidizing renewables, just worrying about um, uh, stopping to subsidize the fossil fuels. Now, in terms of technologies, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I follow it quite closely or try to. And I think the one technology that will really be game changing is something called uh, green hydrogen. So this is uh, running your car off a hydrogen fuel cell. I mean, I think everyone um, remember if they remember their kind of basic chemistry, H2O. 
um, if you combined uh, uh, hydrogen and oxygen to create water, the byproduct is water, not the byproduct, the product is water, but it also creates uh, energy. Um, so, but the, the, to make it uh, environmentally friendly, you have to create the hydrogen in, a, in itself in a green way. So you can't use fossil fuels to create the hydrogen because you're just you know, not fixing the problem. So, but once we have green hydrogen, which is essentially hydrogen created uh, out of, um, um, say, solar, of course, then the hydrogen is a store, so it acts like a battery, in effect, even though it's not like what you lithium-ion battery. But once you have that storage of, um, of, of, of hydrogen and you have uh, hydrogen-powered vehicles, I think it'll be completely game-changing. And I, see, I expect in 20 years, 20, 30 years, we'll see that around the world. But it also raises the question for Nigeria of what it's doing in terms of its, its kind of uh, mobility and mobility uh, direction on there. I, I mean, we're still talking about building an internal combustion engine industry in the country, which just seems to me the wrong direction given given where all this is going. So I, I hope Nigeria has a, a think about it. I mean, we don't need to go through all the stages that other countries have gone through. Our whole uh, strategy has to be based around leapfrogging. Mm, I, I, I mean, it's interesting the policy response for countries like Nigeria came up because not just building a domestic uh, uh, automobile uh, industry, we also subsidize petrol prices with mostly power cars and uh, generators. So now, how should poor countries or relatively poorer countries approach the issue of climate policy? Because one, one thing that consistently comes up is that the West, basically industrialized nation got rich by polluting and it's become a bit of a moral question that and even china with coal i mean britain with coal during the industrial revolution you know polluted massively so and uh, 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 with countries in africa who are just industrializing how should they approach the issue of climate policy and pollution and still be able to industrialize or should poor countries make uh, 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 offset some of this pollution maybe carbon credits or, or whatever how how should we go about that well it's a very difficult question i mean you're exactly right i mean you think of kind of all the injustices in in the world, um, the injustice that wealthy nations got rich by polluting and by causing climate change, and of course um, poorer nations are are the victims of this, including including Nigeria. I mean, a lot of you mentioned earlier in the show, Toby, just um, people saying that uh, you know some of the security difficulties that we're facing are are really directly the result of climate change as the Sahara creeps south, it becomes more and more difficult to to um, earn a living in, in the traditional uh, grazing lands as those grazing lands shrink. Of course, we've had Lake Chad just uh, tragically shrink by, I think, 90% over the last um, five or six decades. Um, and of course, there are projections that somewhere between 10 and 25% of Nigeria's population will be underwater if uh, the climate increases by two two degrees. I mean, Lagos is a very low-lying city. It is really so. You have a threat 
from the uh, from the north, you have the threat from the Atlantic Ocean in the south. It's a very difficult situation. So, I think there is emerging a kind of economic um, uh, body of thought around the kind of moral imperative climate change, and I think that what Africa should do is kind of band together and you know, with one voice keep this this on the agenda. But I also think that um, you know the only development path that it works is kind of let's call it sustainable development or green development. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a little story from uh, my my client who brought me to Nigeria effectively, which was uh, Governor uh, Sanusi or His Royal Highness Mohamedou Sanusi II. Um, of course, he was the governor of the Central Bank and then was the Emir of Kano for a while. And, uh, I think in many ways is the most important economic actor in in the continent. Um, I have enormous respect for him. But when he was governor, he went to 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 China, and one of the lessons he came back from was the Chinese said that they had made an error, and the error they had made was they thought they could get rich quickly um, and clean up later. And I mentioned before I lived in, in China, so I experienced this firsthand. People might have seen, if you follow the news closely, some terrible levels of pollution in, in Beijing in the last uh, few weeks. But I mean, when I lived in Beijing, it literally was, was, uh, it was horrible. The air quality was horrible. So it wasn't even a question of polluting and causing problems for others. The Chinese were uh, developing their industrial base at this breakneck speed. And um, and they were suffering themselves. I mean, the rivers are, are horrendous. They're filled with chemicals. Um, some of them caught fire. That that actually happened in the United States. For uh, those who uh, are familiar with it, in Pittsburgh, they have the three rivers come together. They, they caught fire in the 50s before the U.S. cleaned up. So, so I think the Chinese, or some of the Chinese, recognize they they've made a mistake. There's no benefit to developing in a in a non-sustainable way. But I think for Nigeria, there's no choice now. But the good news is I think the world has moved on, and I do think there's a lot of capital available to Nigeria from outside for sustainable development, for circular economy, for SDG financing, all of those things. I mean, we need to find a way to to um, package it up and tap into it. I mean, we know that we don't have enough capital in Nigeria or in Africa to develop the way that we want to. So we need to tap into other sources of capital, but the whole, the world has kind of moved on. And Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, which is the world's asset manager, has been, you know, he's made it really the cornerstone. I mean, there is no investment uh, that's not sustainable. So people, I think in the 2010s, and we increasingly heard this concept of sustainable investment, we thought of it as a niche uh, idea. But into 2020s, all investment is sustainable investment. People are not going to invest in something if it's not a sustainable investment. And, and the language that we're increasingly moving towards is the um, sustainable development goal language, uh, the 17 goals, and then there's about 200, almost 300 kind of sub sub goals within those 17 uh, that the UN has put together. And it's turning out to be a very powerful language because people understand things like zero hunger, no poverty, gender equality, meaningful work, decent work, um, you know, life under sea, life on land. So so those things are becoming what people will, will finance. And Nigeria needs to really, really tap into it. And I'm... Um, yeah, I'm honored to be one of the founding governors of something called uh, Financial Center for Sustainability Lagos, which is the Lagos part of a global network of financial centers that basically say where we're going to put capital, 
is into projects and companies uh, and, and the direction of travel that is that is sustainable and fits with the SDG goals. And this was started in Lagos by um, by uh, by Coco, who's the uh, CEO of FMDQ. So you might think FMDQ, for those who don't know, is the is the it's like the Nigerian stock exchange, but it's for fixed income. So you trade government bonds and corporate bonds and FMDQ. And you might think, why would the CEO of FMDQ uh, start the Financial Center for Sustainability in Lagos? Well, because he sees as well that all all financing has to be sustainable in 2020. So I, I, I think it's a positive news, but we need to package up investment opportunities for people that are sustainable. Uh, big theme right now, circular economy. I mean, uh, the only economy that works for the planet is circular, right? What are, you can't have products where you haven't thought about the total life cycle. What happens to the waste? Is the value to the waste? If we have to dispose of the waste, can we dispose of the waste in a sustainable way that uh, you know doesn't harm people down the line? Because eventually there's going to be a reckoning for that. So overall, I'm I'm actually quite heartened by it. As I said, I think the world is really the last five years moved on in its thinking. I just think Nigeria needs to to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's talk about technology really quickly. Um, a lot of people are worried or <laughs> scared of automation and what it means for our future. Developments in machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics. Are we are we facing a future of uh, long-term disemployment of the labor force? How real is the threat? from automation. I remember this memorable uh, uh, blog post by by Lance Pritchett saying with a scary uh, uh, opening line that why are geniuses destroying jobs in Africa? You know, because you need these labor-intensive, low-skill manufacturing jobs and automation is really a threat to that. How serious is this threat? Is there no win, really? Well, I think that... Um I mean, I think when this works properly, I mean, it's presumably supposed to make life better. I mean, why do we go to all this effort of advancing technology if we're not like making life better for people? So if I was going to paint a, a, a positive narrative, uh, you know, I hope it could frees up time so people can do things that are more meaningful, which may, may be you know, doing more education, more connectivity with the people that you care about, more civic active. I mean, it's supposed to save you save you time, save you energy, bring the cost down of, of, of doing any anything. So I'm not worried so much on, on that score if we have a, a proper um, development path. And you know, we should be freeing up time. I mean, you don't want to be using resources or, or people's time unnecessarily to, say, do low-end manufacturing, because if you free up the time, people can spend more time doing health, more time doing education. But I actually am very worried about the kind of unintended consequences of, of the technologies, particularly artificial intelligence, and the way that uh, we're all now being guided by algorithms that we have no sort of control over or no insight into. So, you know, you go on the uh, on the internet, and what is being shown to you, and if you're on Facebook or LinkedIn or any of these social media groups. Um, Twitter, what's being, and of course I'm a big user of Twitter, but but what's being shown to you is decided by some algorithm that you don't understand. Um, so where does that where does that go? And it decides, you know, whether you can get a loan, 
and decides whether you can get a job. I mean, I've had a number of companies recently show me these kind of automated um, uh, tools to, to, to help you know, personnel managers make hiring decisions. And I worry about that. And of course, we also just even know some of the, the initial findings, there's biases, racial biases in a lot of these algorithms that people are starting to, to understand. And there's been a lot of controversy at Google, for example, and conflict with some of their AI people as these have come out. So I really worry about a world where the AI in particular is kind of, is, is a bit out of control. And I think we're going to have to have a, a, a moral, a bit of a moral think about it. I mean, the other aspect that I worry about is just the, the impact, if you think of this, you know, so social media, for example, and this is the entire business model of Facebook, it's it's based on kind of hu human neuroscience in, in, in ways to uh, become addicted, right? I mean, the whole system is designed to keep you looking at your Facebook for as many hours as possible, to be searching out the likes. Um, it's very distracting on that. Um, and I think there's early evidence that emerging that a, a lot of young people can't concentrate in the same way that might have been easier in a different era. So if I go back to my own, my own uh, uh, when I was young and I studied as an undergraduate mathematics and computer science, so I could sit in my apartment. I mean, to do the computer science, of course, I had to go to the computer science department and I was I'm dating myself, but uh, using punch cards. Um, <laughs> Is my first year, and uh, was the, the my first year studying was when Pascal got got uh, introduced. Um, so we did it on punch cards. By second year, we had replaced that, but you still had to go there. But for mathematics, I would sit in my apartment and work on math problems. You know, I could get up at uh, 7:30, have a cup of coffee by 8:15, doing math problems, and I could do it till noon if, you know, if I didn't have any lectures, no distractions, maybe one telephone call on a rotary on a rotary telephone, you might take a break, stretch, go for a little walk. But, you know, you would have done three, four hours of concentrated work. Now, when I sit down to do, like on Sunday morning, I do a lot of my writing and thinking. But, you know, you're constantly bombarded by by WhatsApp, I think you know, people saying stuff on, on LinkedIn. And I just I just wonder what we've lost in, in all of that. And I think we're going to really have to have a, a, a deep think about our relationship with technology over the next um over the next uh, 10 or 20 years. I mean, we need to start having the deep think now to think about where, you know, how does technology uh, fit into our lives in 10 or 20 years? I'll go back to the basic point I made earlier, which is why develop these technologies if it's not making, making life better? I mean, if the only outcome is to make some people incredibly wealthy and to make the majority of people's lives worse, like perhaps Facebook, cyberbullying, another issue. I mean, we didn't, you know, didn't have that that we had bullying, but of course it was physical. And, you know, there were social constraints to it because it was happening physically in the cyber world where you're anonymous. I mean, we've had an explosion of that and that impact on mental health, particularly for young people. So, so I do think we need to have a real, a real um, thoughtful sort of policies developed and, and approaches to it. And and I'll go back. I mean, oftentimes I stand up and 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 you know, I'm very big on innovation, and I, I I'm um, 
really inspired by what many young people in Nigeria and Africa are doing with, with technologies, particularly when they combine the physical world or could do something new for health with some technology or something new for education in particular. But I'm also very worried about the impact of this technology, and I don't fully, fully embrace uh, kind of a mindless rush to it. And I do think it raises a lot of a moral issue is a little bit like the climate change that and increasingly there is. I mean, I just saw, I think maybe Oxford or Cambridge just launched a, a kind of new center that looks at the moral aspects of artificial intelligence for uh, uh, as, as, as a step forward. So I think that's really critical to think about. Mm, I, I, I hear you. I hear you, Andrew. But, but let me just push on that just a little bit. So I, I read this paper recently by Danny Rodrick and uh, the, the co-authors where they found that even in countries that are seriously involved in uh, manufacturing, industrialization, Tanzania, Ethiopia, because of the technological adoption by the firms, the former firms in those economies, um, they are not creating enough jobs. So my point is, with the jobless situation and the young population in countries like Nigeria, for example, and all over Africa, isn't really it a reason to worry about uh, uh, automation? I mean, you know, a lot of these people spend a lot of time on social media. I see some of the responses to your tweets and I shake my head. And I mean, what do you think? Well, I think that, um, yeah, I know, I think it's a big issue. I, I, to be honest, I don't have the, the numbers to know what it is. I mean, well, I'll say what I've always said is that if you think about the unemployment situation, which is dire in, in uh, Nigeria, and just the numbers for the Nigerian Bureau of Statistics um, are just really this week that came out, just uh, it makes you weep. But, um, I mean, the only path forward to have people have, meaningful employment and purpose is for every industry to be to be uh, uh, switched on. So people sometimes ask me, you know, which are the most important industries? And I would say all of them. But I mean, we've always started from the viewpoint the last five years at PwC that, that the first one's real estate. So construction, residential housing, people need a place to live. Uh, when they get a place to live, you know, they pay it over time. Um, we use local building materials, uh, electricians, plumbers, um, carpenters, all of those people are employed. You then furnish it. All of those people are buying local things. Um, so that's the crit critical industry. And I don't see that being automated. I mean, maybe you can make some of the the pieces in um, prefab prefab places. So that industry has got to get going. Um, the other the health and education. I mean, we need a lot more health and education in Nigeria. Um, and of course, you know, that absorbs a lot of people. Those are huge industries. Um, so the, you know, the manufacturing, if manufacturing is more automated, I'm not that concerned about it to be, to be, to be, uh, frank about it. I mean, if we have a well-functioning, I don't want to say economy, well-functioning society where we're doing the things that we should be doing in health, education, um, uh, renewable energy, we're going to have enough enough jobs. I think that also, I mean, I have also been coming out saying 70% of the world's economy is in services, right? And we should be thinking in terms of our exports from Nigeria in exporting services more than exporting physical, physical goods. I mean, for a number of reasons, one of which is just we have very difficult uh, physical infrastructure. A Papa port is just, 
there's no path in the next five years to seeing us creating kind of a infrastructure that we'd be competitive with other nations in physical goods. But we're already very competitive in services. I mean, you had two Grammy Award winners last uh, last week, uh, I think Wizkid and Bernie Boy um, in New York. So we're exporting sorry, Los Angeles, I think, but we're exporting services already. We're exporting financial services. So we're exporting I- ICT uh, technology services. And I think that is how we should be kind of focused on in terms of building up our export base in Nigeria. So, you know, on the scheme of problems in the world, automation of some manufacturing, I don't think is Africa's biggest challenge. Mm. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been fantastic doing this with you. Thank you so much, Toby. Really enjoyed it. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com.